you know, I've been praying both personally and for us as a church um, into a prayer from Ephesians 1.17, where Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And uh, it's really an amazing little prayer in that one verse. I mean, the, the prayer is actually longer than one verse. But in that one particular verse, Paul's request is so compelling to me, so inviting. And I hope you'll find it inviting as well, and that so much so that you would want to pray this uh, into and over your own life. It's Ephesians 1.17. I keep asking, Paul says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Anybody want to know Jesus better? Does that sound like a good idea? Uh, I didn't see everybody's hand go up. Okay. All right. Thank you for your support and encouragement there. Um, so if you want to know Jesus better, it starts with praying that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. That is the Holy Spirit, of course, the spirit of Christ Jesus. He's the one in us that gives us the wisdom and revelation we need in order to know Christ Jesus better. And that's an ongoing journey. You can always know him better than you do right now, right? We're never going to get to the end of that journey and think, well, I know everything there is to know about Jesus and following him. It's an ongoing journey that we have to commit ourselves to. And that commitment begins with asking the Holy Spirit to keep growing us. So let's pray that he would do that right now. Lord, we, we commit this time to you. As we come together, we come not just to worship, but we come to study, we come to learn, we come to submit our lives to the truth of your word and to the power and revelation of your spirit. So right now, Lord, we ask, as Paul exemplified for us, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better than when we came in this morning. Use this time in the word, Lord. Use what I'm about to say to, to take us deeper in relationship with you. We welcome your presence. We welcome the truth of your word together with the power of your spirit to come and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I don't think that was the voice of the Lord. <laughs> no, my battery looks good. Okay. Sorry about that. You're all awake. Right, exactly. That, that was perfect. Good, good wake-up call. Thank you. Okay. So, last month in January, uh, we began talking about uh, a quest, a quest that we're all on to live well, right? Anybody want to experience the good life, right? But what is the good life? That's a huge question for us to answer. What does it mean to live well? And there are multiple ways to answer that question. The way that the world might answer it is very different than the way that Jesus might answer it. And so we looked at a story from John chapter 4 where Jesus encountered a woman from Samaria at a place called Jacob's Well. And as they encountered one another, this woman's life was changed to the core 
by what Jesus had to say, by the revelation of who Jesus was and what he came to do. In fact, it was so changed that not only was she changed personally, she went and told everybody in her village about how uh, Jesus had met her and spoken into her life, and they all came and met him, and we're told at the end of the story that Jesus stayed multiple days in that village to minister to the people there. So, so living well, we learned, begins with an encounter with Jesus, and it begins with the practice of worship. We spent several weeks talking about Jesus' words in John chapter 4 on the subject of worship. In fact, just to review what we talked about, if you'd put that review slide up, Jacob. To live well is to prioritize the practice of genuine worship toward God. We spent the last several weeks talking about what that means and what that looks like for us. Well, this morning we're going to move on to another practice that's really critical to our relationship with Jesus and to experience the kind of life that he invites us into. If you want to live well, not only do you have to practice genuine worship, the second significant practice we're going to address and look at together is that you have to practice what we might call biblical discipleship. Biblical discipleship. To live well is to prioritize the practice of biblical discipleship in following Jesus. And we're going to talk about this theme of biblical discipleship and what it means to practice that over the next four weeks through the month of February. And we're going to do that using a passage that we'll turn to in just a moment from Matthew 16, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's an incredible encounter uh, that Jesus has with his disciples, a teachable moment that he has with them uh, near the end of his ministry, not long before he went to the cross. So we'll turn there in just a moment, but as I shared with you during the announcements, I thought it would be good actually just to watch a preview of the movie that I spoke of called Tortured for Christ because Richard Vermbrand, this Romanian man who suffered 14 years in prison, uh, has an incredible story that illustrates what I want to talk about this morning. I want you to think about his experience. And you're going to see just a minute and a half or two minutes of a trailer for the movie. I hope it'll whet your appetite to see the whole movie. But at the same time, I hope it'll, it will prepare you to hear what I want to talk about this morning. So take a look. My name is Richard Zumbrand. August 23, 1944. One million Russian troops entered my country. And then the nightmare began. You know what? I think you should perform the wedding. See you at the church in one hour. Sabina Wurmbrand. It is happening here just as it did in Russia. This is madness. from the officers again? <laughs> Did you give them a blessing? And a flower. <laughs> you do know that if I speak now, you will have no husband. 
don't need a coward for a husband. So with that story in mind, hear the words of Matthew as he describes Jesus' interaction with his disciples. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is 
the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16. So as we think about these two stories together in one, there really are two different stories that we've looked at that fit side by side or back to back, if you will. And I think Matthew, and perhaps we could say God himself, had a significant purpose in mind when he paired these two stories together. And that's why I want to look at them with you. You know, I've preached many times on the first part of this passage, beginning at Matthew 13, the encounter that Jesus had with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and we'll talk some more about that again next Sunday. I've also preached on other occasions about the end of this passage, the story about Jesus' interaction with Peter, Peter becoming a stumbling block, and, uh, you know, Jesus' instructions about discipleship and what that means. I don't think, to my recollection, that I've ever preached on the two together, and yet I want you to see something very significant about how these stories fit together and work together. You see, as one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the first and most famous of Jesus' disciples, Peter learned a valuable lesson that's revealed to us in these two stories together. What did he learn? Well, here's the way that I would sum it up, and this is just the first of two takeaways I want to put before you this morning. I think we could say that Peter learned that practicing discipleship, biblical discipleship, involves more than knowing who Jesus is. It's really about growing in trust and yielding to what he wants to do in your life. That's the essence of discipleship. It's not just knowing who Jesus is. That's the beginning of the journey. But the journey itself, the journey of following Jesus, is about learning to trust him more and more and yielding your life and your will to his life and his will. Now what connects these two stories together, of course, aside from from Jesus and that they're both about him, is that they're both really about Peter, the disciple Peter. And I think Peter here is, in a sense, representative of all of us. This story or these two stories together are relevant to all of us because they give us an example of what we're all capable of as followers of Christ. This is a story about a genuine follower of Jesus. Bear in mind that that Peter had been walking with Jesus, following him around the the uh, Israeli uh, countryside for three years, learning from Jesus, person to person, face to face, watching Jesus do his thing, listening to Jesus talk. If after three years of that kind of relationship with Jesus, Peter didn't really understand the essence of biblical discipleship, who could? Now, obviously, he'd grown, you know, tremendous, tremendously over the course of that time. But what I want you to see here in the life of Peter is about about the flip that takes place between what happens and what's spoken to him and of him in the first story and what happens and is spoken of him and to him in the second story that follows. To get right to the point here, 
Look with me at Matthew 16, 16 to 18. This is the first story of the two that are paired together, where Jesus says, after Peter's confession of faith, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So there's picture number one of Peter's relationship to Jesus, Peter's understanding of who Jesus is. And it's a beautiful picture. It's an encouraging picture. It's a positive picture. Jesus has a word of not just an encouragement, but really a prophetic word about Peter's future as a foundational leader in the church. But then notice the contrast between those words in verses 16 to 18 and Jesus' words to Peter in verses 22 and 23, just a little while later. In the same chapter, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. you ever had a day like this? You know, where you start the day feeling like you're on top of the world, you're getting everything right, and by the end of the day, you realize what a failure you are? <laughs> Can you relate? Here, within the storyline of one chapter of Scripture, Peter goes from being declared the rock on which the church is built to being identified as a stumbling block in Jesus' way. That's what I'd call a flip. In each case, and this is interesting, he's identified with a rock. Did you notice this? Which, and it's ironic but purposeful because the name Peter that Jesus gives him in the first story actually means rock. That's the literal meaning of the name Peter. But in the first story, he's the rock on which the church will be built, a foundation stone in the life of the church. And then in the second story, he's a rock that becomes a stumbling block in Jesus' way. So the idea here, the message here, is that Peter's identity as a follower of Jesus is a bit inconsistent, right? It's not all that it could be or should be every moment of every day. In one story, he gets it right, and in the very next story, he gets it wrong. How could such a thing happen to one of the greatest and most famous disciples of all time? And, and what are we to learn from Peter's example here? Well, I want you to notice how Jesus expresses the fundamental problem that Peter was grappling with. At the end of verse 23, Jesus says it this way. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Jesus says the problem, Peter, is that you have in mind the concerns of men instead of the concerns of God. Your mind 
is in the wrong place. And friends, what I want you to consider with me is that this is what the, the practice and the process of biblical discipleship is all about. It's about getting your mind in the right place consistently so that you can live in obedience to Christ. Walk in obedience and servanthood to Christ. It all comes down to learning and growing in your understanding of the concerns of God. Because naturally speaking, every single one of us are preoccupied with the concerns of men. And unless we find how to, and figure how to transform our minds through the truth of God's word and the revelation of God's spirit, we will continue to be preoccupied with the concerns of men instead of the concerns of God. So I trust all of us can relate to the struggle that Peter was facing. This is a process, right? And Peter's experience exemplifies this full well. As mature as he was, as great a leader as he was becoming, he didn't, he didn't get it right on every occasion. There were times when he had to recognize that he was, his mind was in the wrong place. And you see, what Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship with him whereby we learn to have the mind of Christ and to think with the mind of Christ. To understand and appreciate and live out the concerns of God instead of the concerns of men. The mind of Christ is a mind that's completely centered on the truth of God's word and completely guided by the revelation of God's spirit. It's the mind of Jesus, right? Think about Jesus. He was sinless when he went to the cross. He lived a perfect life. Never struggled with thoughts that, are, that were wrongly centered. That's the mind of Christ. And that's the mind that Jesus wants to give to those who follow him. So to experience this mindset more and more, we have to be absolutely committed to our own ongoing spiritual growth. We have to want to have our minds transformed to the concerns of God instead of the concerns of men so that we can test and approve what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. You probably recognize that reference, a few of you. It's from Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. And by that, I think he means the way of thinking of this word, world, the concerns of men, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, so God wants you to know his will, but you have to be willingly engaged in that process of transformation that allows your mind to be transformed. Now, in saying all this, understand, friends, I'm not trying to criticize Peter. I'm not trying to denigrate Peter. I'm not trying to tear him down or pick on him. What I want you to hear is that Peter's struggles are something we can identify with. And that's good news. I mean, in a strange sort of way, Peter's failure in this second story, 
Peter's ability to be a stumbling block in Jesus' way is a powerful lesson for each one of us. Because what it tells us is, if, hey, if Peter's capable of that, you don't think you are? You don't think there's moments where you can be a stumbling block to Jesus? We're all capable of the same problem. But the good news is, Jesus wanted to use this experience to teach Peter so that perhaps less and less frequently he would be in the way. All of us, myself included, have to recognize that growing in our understanding of the concerns of God is a process. It's a lifelong process that we have to be absolutely committed to. So for example, when you come here on Sunday morning, are you are you engaging? Are you ready? Are you asking the Lord, God, what do you want to teach me today? What do you want to say to me today? How do you want to grow me today? What do, you want to, what do you want to reveal to me, Lord, about the truth of your word that I haven't previously understood or lived out? That's my heart in teaching. And I may not always do, you know, the best job in the world. I certainly recognize that there are lots of people you could watch on the internet that are better teachers than I am. But what I'm doing week by week as I prepare to deliver a message is I'm asking, God, what do you want me to say? Because I believe that as I declare the truth of your word, you show up by the Spirit to teach people what you want them to know. And if you're receptive to that, if you're responsive to that, good things will happen. You'll be engaging the process of spiritual growth and transformation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that Jesus wants us to have his mind, the mind of Christ. And that comes to us by the Spirit of Christ within us. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and following, the, search, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And what we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Again, revelation of God's concerns or of God's will comes from the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of God's word and inspires the understanding and interpretation of God's word. So anytime you read the word, you're inviting the revelation of God to change the way you think. Let me give you just a symbolic illustration of how this works itself out. As I was thinking and praying this week and preparing this message, I felt like the Lord brought my attention to an image. Really, it's a symbolic image that you could kind of imagine in your mind's eye. Imagine you're you're on a raft out in the middle of a lake. Are you drifting or are you paddling? Drifting or rowing? Where do you want to go? Are you trying to get to the other side of the lake? If you're trying to get somewhere, you're going to get there much more effectively and much more quickly if you add a little effort 
as opposed to simply drifting. If you drift, there's no certainty that you'll actually end up where you want to go. Because drifting happens really by accident. You're at the whim of the winds and the waves. And the point here is simply this. Which one represents the status of your life in Christ? Are you drifting? Or are you going somewhere? Are you paddling? Are you contributing to your own growth in Christ? So as we wind this down, I want to just make one more point. And I want you to see specifically what Jesus said to Peter and what Jesus wanted Peter to learn from this experience. And it comes at the end of the second story. Again, John 16, 23. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so here's uh, really the heartbeat of, of what I want you to take away from this story. To follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, if you're committed to that, is to stay behind him where you're out of his way. You see, you can't follow Jesus if you're in front of him. Jesus, we're told, right, is, in fact, he said it himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life which means that living well amounts to following him as closely as we can so that we can experience him as the way, the truth, and the life. But, it, but to get into his way and his truth and his life, we have to get ourselves out of the way. Does that make sense? If you can understand the play on words here. Are you in his way, like as a stumbling block? Or are you in his way as a follower? Jesus says Peter's become a stumbling block, meaning that he's in the way of where Jesus intends to go and where Jesus intends to lead him. Peter doesn't want to go there because it's not comfortable. Peter doesn't want to go there because it's not what he has in mind for the future of Jesus or for his own future, right? Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death on the cross. Peter's thinking, that doesn't sound so good. I don't think I want to go there. Jesus, you must be mistaken. You see, the greatest challenge for us when it comes to our ongoing spiritual growth and formation is surrendering our thoughts, our desires, and our will to the thoughts, desires, and will of God. And to grow like that in understanding and living out the concerns of God, the will of God, requires the posture of a follower. A follower. A learner. This is a story about posture. It's the posture of following instead of trying to lead or trying to go your own way. It's a story about submitting, not subverting. It's about surrendering, 
Are you in Jesus' way? Or are you behind him, following his lead? Are you facing him down? Or are you walking in his footsteps toward the cross? Are you in front of him or are you behind him? And at any given moment of any given day, that's a, that's a powerful question to ask yourself. Is your thinking a stumbling block to, Jesus, to where Jesus wants to take you? Or is your thinking submitted to his thinking? What Jesus was really saying to Peter amounts to this. Peter, your mindset has been corrupted. Your mindset has been overtaken by the concerns of men and even perhaps the deceptive desires of Satan himself. And that's powerful, isn't it? Peter, I, I, don't, th I don't think Jesus is literally calling him Satan. He's not saying now that, you know, Peter has become Satan. What he's really saying when he says, get behind me, Satan, is Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, be careful. Peter, beware. Your thoughts have been corrupted by the enemy. Your mindset has been overtaken by the concerns of men and perhaps even the desires of Satan himself. So, so Peter, in this instant, is, is receiving from Jesus a rebuke. And it's fascinating because he set out to rebuke Jesus. Peter's trying to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus turns it right back on him and says, Peter, you're the stumbling block. Get behind me. Get out from in front of me and get back behind me where you belong as a follower. You see, the real challenge that comes with being a faithful disciple of Jesus is that Jesus is always going to lead you toward the cross where you don't really probably want to go. Jesus is always going to lead you away from your comfort zone into the challenge of dying to yourself. Jesus is consistently going to lead you to do things that may be uncomfortable to you. Are you okay with that? Because his ways and his will never conform to the ways of the world. And the reason he consistently does this with us is because he wants to keep us behind him following. That's how we learn. That's how we grow in faith. Right? That's how we become and stay dependent on Jesus. So friends, as we close this morning, I want to invite you back to the place of surrender. Surrender. This is where a life of learning to follow Jesus begins and ends, with surrender. If you've never given your life to Jesus, it begins with an act of surrender. It begins with saying, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. I need your love. I need your truth. Because living life apart from you is not working out so well. And if you've never prayed a prayer like that, I encourage you to start here and now. There's no time like the present to give your life to Jesus and to take his life in exchange because his life is abundant and eternal. His life will fulfill you 
in every way that your own life cannot and has not. But it's not easy to walk and live as a follower of Jesus. What he's leading you into is a life of surrender. And this is really the heart of verses 24 and 25. We're going to come back to this and look at these verses more over the weeks to come. Notice what Jesus says and notice how it's really a life of surrender. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 